This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. There is a confusion about what happens immediately after death and life in the hereafter to be. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by James Dolezal, and we today have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Derek Thomas. Derek is the senior minister at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. He's authored a number of books, and the one we're going to discuss with him today is called Heaven on Earth. It's on the subject of heaven. If you'd like the possibility of owning this book, we'll have uh, some instructions at the end of the podcast as to how you can enter and win a copy. But Derek, thanks for joining us today to talk about heaven. Uh, Thank you, Jonathan, James. It's wonderful to be with you, at least in spirit. That's right. We're virtually present together. So, Derek, I wanted to start with a question. Uh, As you counsel people in the church who are thinking about life after death, what are some of the common misconceptions that Christians, even Christians who have maybe been raised in the church, have about heaven? What are some of the things that we generally get wrong? I find that even in conservative Bible-believing and even Reformed communities, there is a confusion about what happens immediately after death and life in the hereafter to be, confusing what we would technically call the intermediate state and that state, uh, say, following the constellation of events that surround the Second Coming, what the Bible calls uh, the new heavens and new earth. Uh, And those two are different ideas. My uh, pastoral uh, observation is that Christians constantly misunderstand that. And and the Bible has given us, I think, a little more information than most people seem to realize. So what about that? I mean, if people are confused in that way, what do you say when they ask you the question, Pastor, what what happens to me as a believer right after I die? So they're, they're trying to distinguish between the new heavens and the new earth and the intermediate state. How do you describe to them, what biblical passages do you point them to to talk about that intermediate state? In other words, what happens to us right after death? Right. Uh, the five seconds after I die question, and where am I? And I think that we need to be absolutely and totally clear about that because Scripture is clear about that, that life continues after death, that consciousness, self-awareness, the soul, uh, but that's another kind of worms, and we'll come back to that maybe later, but that we still exist and we're still self-aware immediately after death. So the dying thief, uh, today you will be with me in paradise, uh, using the same words that Paul uses uh, in Second Corinthians 12 when he says that he was caught up. Uh, so there is conscious existence will completely depend on our response to the gospel. Uh, and those who believe, and those who are regenerate, and those who are trusting in Christ uh, will go to be with Christ. What Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And also, uh, Paul's words to the Philippians from a, a prison cell, anticipating his possible imminent execution, uh, that I'm in a strait between two, whether to stay 
and be with you or whether to depart and be with Christ. And so Paul's understanding that if he departed, uh, if he was to be uh, executed, he would be with Christ. Now, most people call that heaven, but when I hear Christians say, what, what is heaven like? I will you know, immediately have to ask the question, what do you mean by heaven? Are you, are you talking about five seconds after you die? Or are you talking about uh, after the second coming and, and in eternity for the rest of eternity? Which, which one are you talking about? Because they're two different states of existence. Dr. Thomas, in your book, you, you do frequently refer to that distinction between the intermediate state and the eternal state. How should the Christian be thinking about the difference between those two? And does that in any way inflect or shape the hope we have of the glory that is coming? Yes, it most certainly does shape uh, the hope uh, that we have. Uh, let's talk about the intermediate state and confessionally, um, the Westminster Confession or the 1689 Baptist Confession uh, or the Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalists and so on. All, all of these confessions speak of the intermediate state as a bodiless existence. And we won't go into that uh, now, but at death, there is the separation of body and soul. Now, you know, again, most Christians speak about having a soul, which is a very platonic way of describing it. And I think scripture would have us talk about it in different terms. I think scripture would have us say that we are a soul, not that we have a soul. Uh, it's not the idea of the soul being imprisoned within the body and at death it is sort of released. And, and you know, a lot of Christian forefathers uh, of great renown sometimes slided into that. There's, there's one awful line, I think, in Calvin's Institute that seems to suggest something like that. And I'm a big fan of John Calvin. So I, th I think it would be better to say we are a soul. And if you then ask, what does that mean? Well, I think in Genesis 1, it means that you are alive uh, and that you're self-aware and that you have consciousness. And uh, in Genesis 1, it's not just Adam and Eve that are described as nephesh, the Hebrew word for soul, but uh, animals are also described as, as, as nephesh in, in Genesis. And that has some important ramifications. But at the point of death, our soul continues to exist. It has always existed since we were created in the womb, and uh, it'll continue to exist after death. Now, if you then ask me, what is that experience of bodiless existence like? And I would have to say I have absolutely no idea because I don't have any experience of a bodiless um, experience. Because even even if I'm dreaming, I'm doing so by virtue of a physical brain. I always imagine myself in terms of having a physical body. So I, I don't know that. And, and I'm not sure what Paul means in... Second Corinthians, uh, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And, and he goes on to say, not that I would be unclothed, but clothed upon. Um, but he says, even if I depart, we have a body. Uh, we have a house made by God, uh, and so on. And he uses the present tense. We have this existence. And Calvin in his commentary seems to hint uh, in terms of a temporary physicality, it seems to me, uh, but, the, but our confessions certainly do not. But that is not 
the hope. That is a wonderful assurance that when I die, I'm with Jesus. But, but that is a temporary existence. My hope is what Isaiah, or as you say, Isaiah, uh, and as Revelation uh, 21 uh, make clear, um, the ultimate existence is a new heaven and new earth, and in which we will live with resurrected bodies. And we will live in, in what is called a new earth. So the idea then is not of heaven, meaning up there, floating on clouds or, or whatever. I think of the intermediate state as something like a parallel universe, something like a, a, a rent in space that you pass through into some kind of parallel existence. But it's still within creation. You know, I, I would ask folk to think about where is Jesus right now? Where is Jesus? Where is his body? And his body is somewhere. It has a zip code. It, is, it has a location. It is presumably less than six foot tall. It has arms and feet and eyes. And presumably he still breathes if the resurrection body and the and ascended body uh, are at least similar in nature. We don't know whether changes took place between the resurrection body and the, and the ascended body. And I, I don't necessarily think that you have to imply that there were changes. So, so if the resurrection body is what Jesus has now, and, and that's what I certainly believe, then it is somewhere. And it's not in America, and it's never been in America, uh, and it's not in uh, Jerusalem, it's in what we say heaven. It's, it's in that location in space and time where his body is. Now, I don't have a clue as to what, what it means to be bodiless, what it means to be pure spirit or soul, and not think of that in spatial categories, not think of that as being side by side with someone else. That I, that I see and that I recognize, because I certainly think I will recognize folk in that intermediate state. The rich man and Lazarus, you know, is a parable. It's not a parable about the future state after the second coming. It's, the, it's a parable about the intermediate state. And both of those, the rich man and Lazarus, are actually depicted in physical form. Now, okay, it's a parable. How much do you stretch the parable and so on? That's helpful. I think you're right. It is it is easy for Christians to think that once I die, I immediately enter into the eternal state, and that there's there's nothing further in front of that. But you're you're talking about heaven ultimately as an embodied existence of resurrection, distinct from the intermediate state. And in this embodied state, you depict our life, as you discussed toward the end of your volume, as a life full of um, industry and relationships and discovery, not merely with each other, but also with other things that populate that creation, which I think brings us, and, and Jonathan in particular wants to pursue this with you, brings us to one of the interesting sections of your book, worthy of its own subheading, the question of dogs and the afterlife. Yeah, and, and Derek, let me just yeah. jump in there for a moment yeah, before you heart. answer. I've often been asked the question, will my dog be in heaven? I'm not asking you that question. I, I'm perfectly convinced that my dog cannot obtain the beatific vision. My dog can't, but you, you suggest that many dogs can, 
And so why don't you expand on that a little bit? I think it touches actually on James's point about the embodied future resurrection, new heavens and new earth existence. Right. The vision that Isaiah paints at the close of his prophecy, and actually the final verse of his prophecy is a very dark place indeed, but 65 and 66 speak about the new heavens and new earth, and Peter talks about it in Second Peter 3, and, and Revelation closes with it, and that's the ultimate vision of existing in something that's called a new earth. Now, uh, the Calvinists and the, and the Lutherans fell out uh, over this in the 16th century as to whether in the conflagration of the end, the entire universe is destroyed uh, and annihilated and uh, a brand new uh, heavens and earth um, is created. And the Calvinists said no, that there was nothing sinful about matter itself and that what that apocalyptic language is saying is that there will be a re-aeration of fallen creation. Uh, and it's the picture that you have in Romans uh, 8, that creation groans and travels in birth, waiting for the palingenesia, uh, waiting for the renewal uh, or, or even regeneration of all things. And therefore, I think that it's perfectly uh, logical for us to think of the new heavens and new earth as a restoration of Eden. So what was the first creation like before there was sin? And the first creation had somewhere which was called paradise. And elsewhere, human beings, Adam and Eve and their progeny, were told to go out and, and subjugate and, and be vice-regents of the Almighty in a work of exploration and subduing. Uh, and, and that means um, science, and, and that means uh, exploration, and that means travel, and that means music and creation. And I therefore think of the new heavens and new earth as precisely that, um, that we will exist and, and we, we will still be in space and time. I think that we'll still be conscious of the passage of time, that there was a before and there's an after, and it's not just one endless moment. Uh, and I, I don't for a minute think that we will be downloaded with all the information that we will ever possess for eternity in one, in one go. Uh, I think that we will spend eternity exploring and growing and subduing the universe. And what kind of universe will that look like? And I think that it will look like this. And it will look like this if there had been no sin. So rocks and trees and hills and, and rivers and seas. And then Christians get all kind of weird, you know, and they read the book of Revelation and, and it says and there'll be no more sea. And so that leads some to say, well, there are rivers with freshwater fish, but no uh, saltwater fish, which is kind of crazy. And, and a misunderstanding, I think, of what John is saying about the sea. The sea for Jews in the Old Testament consistently was a place of darkness and fear. Uh, and read the Psalms, and every time the psalmist gets a little gloomy, he, he's in the depths of the sea somewhere. And the uh, Leviathan lurked about down there, and, and so on. And I think that John is merely alluding to an Old Testament image uh, that was kind of associated with, with foreboding and, and an enemy and darkness and treachery and all the rest of it. Uh, I'm not saying that the new heavens and new earth won't have oceans, so there'll be no whales or dolphins, you know, or octopuses or whatever, or octopi, I guess is the plural. So that's what leads me to ask the question, because 
I love dogs and I've always had dogs. And, and so people who love dogs kind of relate to people, other people who have dogs. So I'm constantly asked, is my dog going to go to heaven? And, and I, I don't know whether your mutt is going to go to heaven. No, I, I, I'm I, sure he I'm, won't, by the way. I, I'll leave you off the hook I'm, on that I'm, one. I'm absolutely and totally <laughs> of the opinion that there will be dogs in heaven because I think that all of God's creatures will be there. Uh, everything that he has made, that he calls good, 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 and including humanity redeemed, that he called at the first creation very good. And so there will be lines of continuity between this existence and that um, existence. And I, I think we should think of ourselves in terms of bodies with organs that see and hear and breathe and eat. If Jesus ate fish, a carnivorous meal in his resurrected body, that has enormous implications uh, that we need to try and grasp. I'm aware of the charge not to be speculative, and I can hear John Calvin especially saying, you know, that there's, there's no room in theology for speculation. But this world is a theater of his glory, and I think that the new world, the new heavens and earth, will be an even greater theater of his glory. Derek, this is this is a really helpful book. In fact, James and I were just talking before we were able to get you on the phone uh, about how helpful each of us found it personally and people in our own lives that we wanted to make sure uh, got it into their hands. So mm. thanks, thanks so much for your time today, and thank you especially for your work in writing this. Thank you. Looking forward to seeing the two of you soon. So, James, I think both you and I were struck by the... Um, extensive range of evidence that uh, Dr. Thomas gave to us in answer to the question about our dogs being in heaven. I think we both knew, though, that when we asked him the question, he wasn't going to fall back on no. mere sentiment no, or preference. No, that's right. He wasn't, I mean, he did eventually say that he personally loves dogs, but that was only after he gave us some historical theology. Right. And we were in the good, 16th century. And a good dose of exegetical theology justifying the view. You could chase that down in places that we... Uh, weren't going to be able to go in the recording, but you know, the, obviously, there's the universalist question: Do, Are, all, do all dogs, dogs go to heaven? Right. And obviously, that's a silly question. But he's—I <laughs> I don't even. As I read the book, first of all, I like dogs too, and uh, I, you know, it was. He says he doesn't want to present a Platonic view of heaven. Right. What really struck me is that this is about the most non-Platonic view of heaven yet very exegetically rooted it is. that I have read in a long time. Uh, and maybe that's just looking at medieval Catholics who, who emphasize the completeness and the perfection. And you, don't, right. you don't really have room for the passage of time or development or curiosity or all things that Dr. Thomas believes in, and I think makes a good exegetical case for will be in the eternal state. No, I agree. And one of the things I alluded to at the end of our conversation, but you and I spent some time talking about it before, this is a book I would really commend to not only to our listeners, but to your family members and friends. If you have someone who's picked up a book that purports to tell someone's story about being in heaven for 10 minutes, or if you have someone who's asking questions about death, uh, we, we were talking earlier, we, I think this could be a helpful evangelistic book that you could give to your next door neighbor because he, he makes a point of tackling the question of who's in heaven. He puts the question there forthrightly. What will happen to you when you die? And yes. I, I think what the book does, while it's primarily 
pitched to Christians, giving them a biblical understanding of immediately after they die and eventually what eternal life looks like in the new heavens and new earth. I think it does two things evangelistically. It puts the challenge and the question of the gospel in front of the believer and the unbeliever. Mm -hmm. And I will just say this in terms of his style in the book. It's anecdotal, but not to a fault. It's accessible language. It's plain, but but he's actually going somewhere as he makes the argument. And the argument he makes is that uh, heaven is for your good and it's desirable. So I think he both brings the challenge of what will happen to you when you die, but he also sets forth eternal life in the presence of God as as a delightful thing that only the Christian can anticipate. And I, I have thought of this as a book that could be used effectively even as an evangelistic tool. I agree. This would be my go-to book now for anyone who is asking those kinds of questions or even asking questions about life after death in general, whether whether they're a Christian or not. Well, James, that was a fun conversation. I think it went almost exactly as we thought it would go, which which was great because love Dr. Thomas's work and, and have appreciated his friendship. As a matter of fact, actually, just as a brief anecdote, he is one of the people who was most instrumental in starting this podcast. And I was in a mm. Panera Bread in Princeton with him and he suggested it and we talked about how it might get off the ground so anyway derek thomas heaven on earth what the bible teaches about life to come we'd love to give that to you uh or love to give you the opportunity to enter to win a copy of it if you go to placefortruth.org click on the theology on the go link there'll be a drop down option there for you to enter your name and uh we'll pick one of the names and send you a copy of heaven on earth by derek thomas those of you who perhaps don't get this uh, free copy, we'd really encourage you to pick it up for yourself, to read it, to give it out to others. And for all of you who are listening to Theology on the Go, we want to thank you for listening and also remind you that the only way we can continue to do shows like this is through the generosity of donors like you. If you are able to donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that on AllianceNet.org. Click on the Donate button or PlaceForTruth.org the donate button as well. Thanks for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.